We are continuing our study of the book of Esther, and tonight we're going to be looking at chapter 7, so if you want to go ahead and turn in your Bibles to that particular chapter. In just a moment, I'll lead us in prayer, but let me kind of catch us up where we are in case um, you haven't had the opportunity to be here for every class, but of course we're Introduced at, to, at the beginning of the book to a king by the name of Xerxes. King James has Hazarus, but we like to call him Xerxes because it just sounds better. And um, that's his Persian name anyway. And uh, he, of course, had a big party and um, asked his wife, Queen Vashti, to come in. Queen Vashti refused because evidently something that he wanted her to do was not something that she felt she should do. And because of that, his advisors got together <clears throat> and said that one of the worst things that could ever happen in history might happen if he didn't do something about it, and that is that the women would rebel. And they did not want that happening in Persia, and we don't want that happening today. And um, so they decided that the queen would be done away with, and he agreed to that, and so they put Vashti away. A period about three years or so went by, and the king got lonely, and so they decided to have a... Uh, basically a beauty contest and pull all the virgins there was in the kingdom of uh, empire of Persia. And lo and behold, the person that he picked was a Jew, Jewish woman by the name of Esther, who was the adopted daughter of Mordecai, and she became queen. Uh, in the process of her becoming queen, uh, Mordecai, he always wanted to keep an eye on his adopted daughter, would be at the gate of the palace and he overheard what? A plot. A plot to kill the king. And um, he notified the proper authorities, and the plot was um, stopped, and a record of it was made in the king's chronicles. Some more time went by, and um, a guy by the name of Haman was appointed prime minister of Persia, second in command. And the king decreed that whoever uh, saw Haman needed to bow down before him. And there was a guy that we've already mentioned by the name of Mordecai who refused to do so. And this made Haman very, very mad because he was a man with a big ego. And so he decided that it was necessary not only for Mordecai to die, but every single Jew in the entire Persian Empire. Millions and millions of people. And so he goes to King Xerxes. And he tells King Xerxes that he'll give him a large sum of money if he passes a law, according to the Medes and the Persians, that um, all these Jews will be killed. And basically, Xerxes agreed to it. Um, Haman and his advisors went and cast lots, or literally cast Purim. And that's where the, the theme from the, for the Feast of Purim comes from, as far as the Jews is concerned, why it's called the Feast of Purim. It's literally the casting of stones, and it means to, to, by chance. And it so happened that it fell a year later. So they have a whole year to deal with this particular situation. Well, once the news got out and the decree had been uh, sent throughout the land, uh, Mordecai put on sackcloth and ashes and sat at the gate, and his adopted daughter sent out some clothes to him. And he said, I don't care what you say, I'm not changing. And... Um, Esther asked why, and he sent word back about what was going to take place. And he says, you need to go see the king and ask him to spare the people. You need to approach him. 
And Esther sent word back saying, I don't know if I can do that or not. And the reason why she felt like she couldn't do it was what? She might be killed. Why, though? Why was she might be killed? Yep, the scepter had to be extended. And they would come up and bow down before the scepter and touch the tip of it, recognizing that they had been invited into the palace. And uh, so Mordecai wrote back, and he basically said, don't you think just because you're a queen that you're going to live through this? You're going to die. But the most important thing he told her was, who knows that if God has not put you in this particular place at this particular time for such a time as this? You're a part of the plan of God. You got a comment you're making or you're just holding your hand up? So you wonder why she would be included, not be included? Well, maybe that's what she was thinking, but Mordecai said, don't you think you're going to be spared? Maybe he was going to tell somebody. It might even have happened that once the people started killing, the word might have got out, was it going to extend all the way to the king's palace now? Are you going to kill the queen too? It just has a way of, of, of trying to spare themselves. And so, but um, Esther was convinced that this was something that she needed to do, that she needed to go see Xerxes. And basically she said, if I perish, I perish. I'm going to see this to the end. And so she dresses up in her nicest queen pantsuit and um, puts on her little tear or whatever she has, puts on some sweet-smelling stuff, and um, she walks in, and she walks in at such an angle that the king starts seeing her before she gets there, and he's just taken in by her beauty, and he extends the scepter to her. And he is so smitten because it's been 30 days since he has spent any time with her that he promises to give her half of his kingdom. Just make the request known. But she is being coy and sly and knows that this has to be done in a certain kind of way. And so she says, I just want you to come have some vittles with me. And knowing what you to come, I want you to bring your buddy Haman with you. And if you'll do that, then we can, we can get the request taken care of. So sure enough, they came in, and they were all excited about this. Uh, Haman was all excited because he gets to have a private dinner with the king and the queen in her chambers. And they get there, and the king says, I'll give you half of my kingdom. Just tell me what you want. And she says, well, i tell you what. Why don't you come back and have some leftovers later? Let's have another meal tomorrow, and you and Haman come back. All right? And um, in the meantime, Haman is all tore up because he's gotten all this praise, all this recognition. He's even got to have a private dinner in the private dining room with the private chefs, with the private napkins and the private cups and the spoons and the forks. And he was just so excited about all this notoriety and fame he's getting until he hit, hit the palace gate. And who was there? Oh, Mordecai. Oh, Mordecai. I could just see how his whole countenance just changed all at once. Oh, Mordecai. So he gets home and he starts telling his wife and all his friends and cohorts about how great he is and how wonderful he is and how he has all these wonderful things. But as long as Mordecai's alive, I can't enjoy any of it. So he made the decision he was going to build this pole in the ground 
And tonight we're going to discover something else about this pole in the ground that's very interesting. It tells us a lot about Haman, but he's going to put this pole in the ground that's 75 feet high. And it's his plan. As soon as he gets permission from King Xerxes, he's going to take Mordecai and he's going to impale him on that pole. And everybody will know that if you don't bow down to Haman, you're not going to have an enjoyable evening. It says gallows in, in some translations, but they didn't hang people. They impaled them. And the better translation would be pole. Literally, the word in the Hebrew is a tree. And thus, the idea of any man is hung on a tree, as the Jew said, he's accursed. Okay. So, um, in the meantime, to continue the story, King Xerxes, after this meal with his Queen Esther, and we spent a lot of time talking about this, how the province and God was all involved with this, but we're not going to dwell on that tonight. But Xerxes couldn't sleep. And of all the things he asked to help him fall asleep, he asked that one of his uh, servants come in and read to him. You know, as many of you remember when you were a little baby that your parents might have read to you so you'd fall asleep. Um, I, they told me to count sheep, but I couldn't count that high, so it never worked for me. Um, but anyway, he started reading, and the book he decided to read to the king was the Chronicles of, of the Palace. And it just so happened the place that he decided to read was the very place where it describes how Mordecai saved the king from the plot of the two men that were going to kill the king. And Xerxes says, well, wait a minute. Has anything ever been done for Mordecai? Has anything ever been shown our gratefulness and, and our, our appreciation for him sparing my life? Was anything ever done? And basically the servant says, well, I guess you know, things kind of fell through the cracks. He never was honored in any way. And so Xerxes says, well, is there anybody in, in the palace that I can consult with this? And the servant says, yeah, old Haman's there. And the implication, and he's been there all morning. He wants, to, he wants to get a head start on getting Mordecai killed. That's the first point of business he wants to start with, to start with the king because he wants to make sure that Mordecai is put to death as quickly as possible so he can have some peace in his life. So Xerxes says, well, bring Haman in here. I got something to ask him. And to paraphrase the text, as soon as Haman got in there, before he could say anything about killing Mordecai, King Xerxes says, well, Haman, if the king wanted to honor a man, what do you think we should do for him? And old Haman said, oh, this is getting better and better. I'm going to get Mordecai killed today, and I'm going to get this king to give me all these honors. Let me start making me a list. And so he says, I think he should be able to wear the king's robes. I think he should be drawn on the king's special horse. And there should be one of the highest noblemen in the country to lead him around on the horse, proclaiming to all of Persia how honored this particular man is. The king says, you know, Haman, that's a good idea. And Haman says, yeah, I know it is. He says, now go get Mordecai and you do that to him. Oh, man, once again, I can just see him, Mordecai, Mordecai. And sure enough, he went and got Mordecai. He put the king's robes on him, put him on the king's horse, dragged him through the town, proclaiming everywhere that the man on this horse was most honored in Persia. And after it was all said and done, he was so ashamed about the whole situation and how he had been um, had his ego defeated that he covered his face on the way home because he didn't want anybody recognizing who he was evidently. 
And he got home and he told his wife and his cohorts again about the situation. And, um, but this time they said something kind of unusual. In fact, it's almost perplexing. They said, you might want to watch this. This man's a Jew. And if this has happened with Mordecai with the king, your plans might not come to fruition like you think they will. Now, we spent some time discussing what that was all about last week, and we can just conjecture. Uh, But anyway, he received a warning that you might want to drop this whole thing because it's not going to turn out the way that you thought it was going to turn out. And um, basically, that's um, where we um, left him the other day. Uh, Mordecai went back to his gate where he was before, and Haman went back to his house with his head covered. And uh, that's where we were when we we stopped before we get now into uh, chapter 7. But um, before I lead us in prayer, any questions and comments about what I've reviewed so far? I want to make sure we're on the same page because we're going to start hitting the climax of the book now, and you kind of will fall flat if you didn't know the story that led us up to this. Okay? Chapter 7 is the, the height of the story, even though we have three or four more chapters after this. All right, so chapter 7 picks up with the events of that particular morning after Mordecai went back to the gate and after um, the, um, Haman went back to his house. You remember chapter 6 ended with the king's servants coming and getting uh, Haman and said, it's time for your banquet. And so in verse uh, 1 of chapter 7, it says, So the king and Haman came to banquet with Esther the queen. Now it's interesting that this is the seventh time that there's been a banquet in this book. This is a banqueting bunch of people, isn't it? And uh, it's been the same word that has as its root word, uh, a, a wine drinking party, so it just shows you once again how the Persians were really into drinking, and evidently, since the word is the same, it's something similar going on here. Um, but this is the seventh time we've had people getting together to have a banquet. And the king said again unto Esther on the second day of the banquet of wine, what, what is thy petition, Queen Esther? And it shall be granted thee. And what is thy request? And it shall be formed even to half of the kingdom. Now, think about how Xerxes was feeling right now, okay? Um, Think about how many times that he's asked her what her request is, and she said, well, I'll tell you later. Now, his curiosity must have been just about to jump out of his skin to try to figure out what she wants from him. What could it be that he keeps, she keeps putting it off? And it may be that all kinds of things have been going on in his head. Does she want a, a new horse to go to the mall? Does she you know, want some new clothes? Does she want to have some property set aside in her name? I mean, I bet his mind was just working. I wonder what the request will be. Um, you probably had people come up to you before and say, well, you know, I know a secret. And you say, well, what is it? And you say, I'll tell you later. And a little bit later, you, you see them, and they, they say, you never did tell me that secret. Oh, yeah, I'm going to tell you, but it's going to be later. Or you can want to really upset your children, go up to them about four months before Christmas and say, I know what you're getting for Christmas. <laughs> and then they say, well, what is it? And so I can't tell you. You're going to wait till Christmas. And then a little bit later, you go, hey, I know what you're getting for Christmas. You can just drive them crazy with that. And some of that's been going on here with Xerxes. You know, if you think about it, 
Uh, he wants to know what it is. Um, evidently, he cares a lot about Queen Esther, and he's sincere in that he wants to please her with this gift. And um, he may be, even behind the scenes, have been uh, trying to come up with some plans for whatever the quest would be, that his servants would be right then ready to grant that request. And uh, so uh, maybe they wanted to go, she wanted to go on vacation. Maybe uh, she wanted some jewelry. Uh, maybe she wanted to have her palace and, and room redecorated. There's just all kinds of things that might have been going through his head. But what he's, she's going to request was, is obviously the very last thing that was going off in his head. Because we read now in verse 3, Then Esther the queen answered and said, If I have found favor in thy sight. Now notice what, how she's building up to this. If I have found favor in your sight, queen, king, if you really, really do care about me, okay, if you really do care about me, this is something I'm going to ask you. And then she didn't stop there. She says, O king, and if it please the king, in other words, if this is something that will make you happy, this is something that if you care about me, or something that, you, that will make you happy, and here it is. Let my life be given me at my petition and my petition at my request. What's interesting about those words right there, there are only four words in the Hebrew. Let my life be my petition, and let my people be my request. In the Hebrew, that just comes out to four words, and it uses, of course, the, the, um, what's the, the tenses to come out to the, make it all come out the, the way it goes in the English. But I bring that up is that these became very dear and very famous words to the Jewish people. In fact, um, it's words that they say, they use it in their prayers a lot from the period of Rosh Hashanah, which is the Jewish New Year, uh, to Yom Kippur, which is the Day of Atonement. And the prayers that they pray during this time, uh, they will mention in their prayers, uh, let my life be my petition and let my... Uh, my people be my request. And this used as a prayer of, of intercession to God. And the idea is that as Esther petitioned the king to spare her and the people, they now are making the same request to God to spare themselves or take care of themselves and the Jewish people. And so um, these words, you maybe weren't even aware how important they were to the, Jew, the people that are living as Jews today, but it almost would fall under the same realm as we might say, well, remember the Alamo, or um, don't shoot till you see the white of their eyes, or um, don't give up the ship. You know, we have things in our history. I just off the top of my head, there's probably some better ones. We got any history teachers in here that might know me? No, no history teachers, okay. Uh, but anyway... But we have, we have sayings from history in our vernacular that we use that may make, make um, some impression upon us. Uh, those just popped in my head because they just popped in my head, but they had been said in the past and they have some meaning to us. Well, the same thing with this. This was a historical situation with the Jewish people. I mean, think about it. Because of the law of the Medes and the Persians and, and the fact that this edict had been passed, 15 million Jews were going to be killed. And if it wasn't for Esther coming in and saying these words, let my life be given me at my petition and my people at my request, 
then if she hadn't done that, we know that God would have provided in another way. But this is like a turning point in history. This is, this is like the signing of the Declaration of Independence. Uh, this is like some great battle that, that, that the good guys won. I mean, you, you don't really understand and appreciate what these words mean, especially to those people who were Jews living long ago, but even today, those who call themselves Jews. These words just carry such magnitude with them. And so um, they even use it as a part of their prayers, as I said, during that time period between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. Um, so um, these are, you know, these, this, if this was, uh, there was a movie made with Esther, and they didn't do a very good job with it, but this movie was made into a, uh, this book was made into a movie in the right kind of way, with the real good emotion and, and pathos and everything that's involved with it, this would have been a part of the movie where the actress would have just nailed it and just, you know, the music in the back of it. They might even start playing Rocky or something, you know. It's just been, it's just been crazy when she said these words because of this, this is the high watermark of this entire story. Any questions or comments? As I rambled on about that, but I just want to make sure you're impressed upon the, how these words affect the Jewish people even to this day. Okay? So she says, basically, I want you to save my life, and I want you to save my people's life. And um, evidently, from what she said and the way she said my people, um, it's beginning to dawn on Xerxes that she's not who she, he thought she was. And I can just see, um, well, I, I used Grady as, a, as an example. I can just see him going, huh? Yeah, and the guy Grady likes to do that sometimes. Um, and, um, but she didn't stop. She, she didn't give him a chance to even think about it. Notice what she says next, folks. And this is important, what she says. She says, for we are sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be slain, and to perish. She uses three different words in the Hebrew emphasizing. We're going to be slaughtered. Notice what she's saying to Xerxes here when she says, for we are sold. Now, what is going on there? All right, somebody's going to profit from their destruction, and who's going to profit from their destruction? Xerxes is. Don't you remember? You go back over here. He's going to get, um, I forget how much the total was. Um, it would be in today's dollars, $10 million. Okay. Now, what is Esther doing to the king right now? She's driving a point home. This all came about because you think you're going to get some money. In other words, you've settled and agreed to let Haman do this because of this right here. This has nothing more than the fact to do than I got sold. This is about the change. This is about the greenbacks. And so she is really making a dig at Xerxes here because he's the one that had the final say. And um, the implication is if the money wasn't involved, you might not have even done this. But Xerxes, I'm your queen. But guess what? I'm going to die because you wanted this money. That's basically what she's saying. And um, so there's money involved, and that's how she, she kicks it out off. And it's interesting. She starts that way, and pay attention to what she, how she finishes in this verse. For we are sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be slain, to perish. But if we have been sold for bondmen and bondwomen, I had held my tongue. 
although the enemy could not countervail the king's damage. Now, two things she's saying there. First of all, she's saying, now, if we had just been sold into slavery, I might not have said anything. But that's not what has happened. We have been sold to be put to death. And king, you think you're making some money out of this? But in the end, you're going to lose more money than you can even think of. That's what she means when she says, although the enemy could not countervail the king's damage. In other words, the loss would be great. Now, what is she talking about? Absolutely. We're not sure how many people right there in the king's palace, like we said, in the entire uh, Persian empire, which goes all the way down to Jerusalem. Remember, that was the biggest empire in in the world at that time. They're the ones that came after the Babylonians, and they would, of course, be eventually conquered by Greece, and then Greece would be conquered by Rome. But at that time, they were the second largest empire in history, and there was estimated, like I said, 15 million Jews living in the empire. These Jews, did they do anything to help the economy? Absolutely. Did they pay taxes? Oh, absolutely. Did they provide other services as far as the kingdom were concerned? King, you got $10 million, but we can't even count how much you're going to lose if you kill 15 million of your subjects that are productive, law-abiding, tax-paying people. It's going to ruin your kingdom, is basically what she's saying. Did you have something you want to say, Julie? I, I don't believe she, he knew until this point right here and this point right here. Because it was emphasized by Mordecai, don't tell, don't tell, don't tell, don't tell. Yes, hello. Well, the thing about Xerxes, we talked a little bit about this when we first started, when we introduced him at the first chapter. History even tells us that he was a very rash man. He oftentimes didn't think things out. He's very emotional, very egotistical. Um, He was known to do things on the spur of the moment. And uh, he, he, like you said, he just didn't think this out. Um, You know, sometimes when you get an email from some guy in in Uganda that's going to give you $10 million if you just send him a check for $100. Yeah, yeah, that's right. You just hear money, and you think, well, you know, that's a pretty good deal. I get a t- million for a hundred. I mean, I, you know, yeah. And he was known for that too. And um, you know, who knows what was in his mind? But he realizes now he made a bad mistake. In fact, you can tell from his reaction, he feels like a fool. He feels like he just really, he, you know, he did. Yeah, he, he, yeah, he's upset. In fact, um, verse 5 says, And the king Xerxes answered and said to Esther the queen, Who is he and where is he that durst presume in his heart to do so? Now, first of all, he asked a question he already knew the answer to. So the question is, why did he ask that question? Well, it's because he realized ultimately he's at fault but he don't want to take the blame. He wants to make sure the person that, uh, that needs to take the blame takes the blame, okay? Because he feels like he's been duped. He feels like, you know, he's a fool in this particular situation. And it's interesting, when you look at the original language here, the, the King James has, uh, who is he, where is he, that durst presume in his heart to do so? Literally in the Hebrew it has who? He? This one. Where? This one. He who filled his heart to do this. And so you get from the flavor from the original language that here is a man that, first of all, was like totally perplexed. 
a man who wasn't quite sure what to do about the situation, a man that knew that, that Haman was involved, but it's almost like he was getting tongue-tied. Like, you know, what a, he didn't know, this caught him totally off guard. And you get the flavor, like I said, it's just like, who? He? This one? Where? This one? He? Who filled his heart to do this? And you kind of get the idea that he was just all bum-fuzzled by all this. Yes. That's right. It cannot be taken back, Roger. According to the law of the Medes and the Persians, once the king passed a rule, that rule stuck. And the edict had been signed and sealed, and so the Jews have to die. So it's no wonder. In verse 7, it says, The king arising from the banquet of wine in his wrath. The word there in the Hebrew means this man is so angry he can hardly contain himself. And he went into the palace garden. Now picture him getting up and he's just beside himself so angry that he has to walk out of the room and go into the garden. And I just picture in my mind he's just oh, clenching his fist and muttering to himself because like Roger said, what is he going to do now? He has discovered in the space of just a few minutes that he has been duped, that he was a fool to do what he did, and now it's going to cost him the life of his wife, the queen, and it's going to cost him the lives of 15 million subjects that might just ruin his entire kingdom. What is a man supposed to do? And he's angry not only at Haman, but I think he's very angry at himself. And so he just walks off in a rage, and he's probably walking through the garden now trying to figure out Where's the end game of this? How is this going to work out? How is this problem that I created going to be solved? Now, he understands and appreciates the fact that Haman's the one who's going to do this, but yet I think he also appreciates and understands the fact that he was the one that started it all. It never would have happened if it wasn't for him. But like Henry Truman used to have on his desk, uh, the buck stops here. And um, if you're the leader, you're the leader, even if somebody told you something wrong. Um, I'm an ancestor of Ulysses S. Grant, and he was a great general, but he was a poor president because he listened to the wrong people. He listened to the wrong people, and his administration got involved in all kinds of scandal and whatnot. And he, uh, the only reason why he had any money at all to leave his descendants was because he happened to finish a book right before he died that made enough money to take care of his family when he died, but he was broke except for that particular book. But like you said, Michael, he, he listened to some bad advice, and that's one of the things I think that made him angry because he felt he was duped. Yeah, your main man. Now, you think there was anybody you could trust to be your main man. Now, if, if he's not your main man, you might not trust him, but your main man, yeah. Verse 7 again, And the king rising from the banquet of wine went in, went in his wrath and went into the palace garden. And Haman stood up to make request for his life to Esther the queen, for he saw that there was evil determined against him by the king. Now, the king hadn't said anything yet, but Haman could see the handwriting on the wall. There's no way in the world this is going to turn out good. (laughs) There is just no way. And so the only possibility for him to survive this would be to get the king to to have mercy on him because the queen requested it. And you see a big change in events here as far as the uh, type of man that Haman is. In fact, you find out a lot about his true character because this man went from being a bully to being a quivering coward. And that tells you a lot about a bully. 
Usually when a bully stood up to, they, they are the ones that turn into a coward. I remember when I was growing up, we had a guy in our neighborhood, and he was a bully, that he would come up to some of the kids in the neighborhood just without warning and just haul off and smack them as hard as they could until he got to me. And that didn't happen anymore. And he ceased to be a bully after that. But nobody had ever stood up to him before. But um, for some reason, we were at some, one of the neighbor kids' house, and the kid, back then, kids could drive school buses when they were 16, which I never got over that. But um, the school bus was in the person's driveway, and this kid came out of the school bus, and I was standing outside. He came out and hit me right as he came out the door, and I didn't react very well. But anyway, and um, I was a big kid back then, too, so it turned out that he didn't bother us anymore. But my point is that here was Haman, who was all high and mighty, and he was willing to bully other people and put other people to death. But now that the shoe is on the other foot, he turns into a whimpering coward, and he's begging for his life. But he does something he shouldn't have done that kind of seals the deal. Look at verse 8. Then the king returned out of the palace garden unto the palace of the banquet of wine, and Haman had fallen upon the bed wherein Esther was. Now, the King James Version uses the word bed here. This was more than likely the couch that was along the table. Back then when they ate, they sat around and climbed around the table, and they would get on one elbow on one side, and they would eat as they uh, reclined. I don't know how in the world they ate that way. That would drive me crazy trying to eat that way. I'd have to have Karen peel my grapes for me or something so I could eat them. But anyway, <laughs> but, but that's what was going on. But still, he did something that in Persian society you don't do. You don't get on another woman's couch if she was married to somebody else. That was considered very bad manners, and it was considered something that was very improper. But in his effort to try to plead for his life, he got on the same couch as the queen did, where she is lying down. And so, then said the king, will he force the queen also before me in the house? Um, What do you think he's driving at here? What is he accusing Haman of doing now? Right. Huh? What'd you say? Cheating with her. But not according to her plan, he's just going, well, the actual word in, in the Hebrew means subdue by conquest. That's the word that uh, Xerxes used here, subdue by conquest. Now, it's funny, you, you pull up ten different commentators, you'll get five different views on this. Subdue by conquest can be translated meaning that He's going to subdue by conquest in that he's just going to take over this part of my kingdom too. This is a man that's just interested in conquering and taking over. But it also can mean subdue by conquest and the idea of rape. So it can go either way, but you can't say that's exactly what it said because there's a different word in the Hebrew language for rape, and King Xerxes didn't use it. But he did say, you're trying to subdue my wife by conquest. And so um, that's all the king needed. That was the final straw. He now had a legitimate way to kill Haman without making himself look bad. Because all he had to do was tell everybody, hey, you see that guy over there? He was on my wife's bed. Uh, He was on the couch with her. And they weren't watching TV. (laughs) And while he was there, yeah, I just went out to the garden for a few minutes and I come back in and and Haman's all over my wife. And I bet he could play that up. He said, you would not believe 
what he was doing. And that's all it took. That solved the problem as far as taking care of Haman. In fact, as the word went out of the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. And um, you look at that and you think, well, why do they cover Haman's face? Well, have you ever seen a movie where somebody's going to be executed? What do they normally do? They cover his face. Yeah, they blindfold him or put a sack over his face. And that's something they did in the culture of Persia, too. A man who was going to be executed had a hood put over him. And that's what happened to old Haman. He, that right there let him know that he was being led out of that room where he had been with the queen on her couch. And he was going to go straight from that room to where he's going to be put to death. And here's the ironic thing of it all. And one of the chamberlains, Hobarthneth, said unto the king, Behold also the gallows fifty cubits high, which Haman had made for Mordecai, who had spoken good for the king, standeth in the house of Haman. Now, notice this servant. He says, well, listen, you won't know about this. And the reason why he didn't know about this, because Haman never got talked to the king about this, but there is a pole that's 75 feet high that Haman was going to kill Mordecai on it. You know, remember Mordecai, the guy that you just honored, the guy that, that saved your life? Haman was going to put him to death. Oh, I just added to it again. And that calls the king to know what he's going to do next. But there's something in the text that is very mind-blowing when you look at it. When you think about this place where he was going to kill Mordecai. It was right, literally in the Hebrew, it was in the courtroom of, or courtyard of his house. Not only did he want Haman put to death, not only did he want to put him on a pole where everybody could see him, he was going to have him right there at his house. Now, that shows you the sadistic nature of this man that every day when he came home and he went outside to get the mail from his porch uh, there at the sidewalk, there would be the dead body of Mordecai up there rotting away with the birds and other vermin eating at it. And he could just grin and say, Ha ha, you thought you were going to mess with me? But guess what? Then the king said, hang him there on. This pole you prepared for Mordecai. Well, where'd our time go? So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then was the king's wrath pacified. Now, we've got to stop there because our time is up and I hear the kids out in the hallway. But next week, we've got to deal with this sticky situation we got, this big predicament. The law of the Medes and the Persians says all the Jews are got to die. It can't be stopped. So what in the world are we going to do about this? And so that gives you a preview of coming attractions.